0: Well, it's great to have some time now to uh, dig into uh, those two readings that we've heard this morning, and to think about what they mean, particularly in, a, in the context of a sermon series we've been doing, uh, and will continue to do for the next uh, sort of five weeks or so. We've been doing a series called "Meeting God in the Old Testament," and uh, the idea is to look at parts of the Old Testament and see who is it that we see here, and uh, and what is he like. Uh, I don't need to pray this morning, there's been some great prayers prayed for all of us uh, to be listening well and open to what God's got to say, so I'm going to dive right in. Uh, I wanted to start by by asking you if, uh, perhaps like me, at about three o'clock in the afternoon, uh, you start to have a little craving. Does anyone here have a little craving about three o'clock in the afternoon? Uh, You know that there's something good waiting for you, which is dinner in all of its healthy brilliance, but this little craving kind of is saying to you, is it now? Is it now? Is it now? And the answer, of course, is no, it is not now. And so what do we do with our little craving? Does anyone know? Sorry? Chocolate, various other bits and pieces. I think magical machines like this exist for exactly that sort of time of the day. I can remember when I was at when I was traveling to and from uni, uh, it'd be later later in the afternoon, hopping on a train. Trains are terrible, of course, because you have to walk past these things before you get onto the train. And it's always about that time that I was walking past them. And so I'd think to myself, oh, I know there's a good thing coming, but I actually want the something now. And so these magical things obviously help out. Um, I think chicken-flavored Smith's chips are the, the bee's knees. Uh, if you haven't found them yet, you need to get into them. They're great. Uh, but they, they, are, they are not the real thing. They are just something that will tide you over in the meantime before the real thing actually happens. And uh, in fact, if you have too much of them, they actually sell out the real thing and you don't feel like dinner when you eventually get to it. I want to talk to you uh, this morning about, uh, about God and, and think a little bit about how God might be like a vending machine. Now, uh, up on the screen here, I've got a little snippet from a comic. It's a very long comic, and uh, it's got a very intimidating title at the top. It says, The Five Points of Moral Therapeutic Deism. Stay with me, okay? They're going to be helpful. I'll explain what we're doing in a second. There was a survey taking of American teenagers, uh, and it was about 3,000 teenagers, and they asked them what they think God is like, okay? The outcome of that was condensed down into these five points. Okay, And I want us to have a look at it because you might not be American teenagers. In fact, I'm fairly convinced you're not. But I want to suggest that this study actually crystallized something that I think is actually fairly well distributed in our society, a thinking about God that isn't Christian but looks vaguely like it. Have a listen to these, uh, these five points here. The first one is, "...a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth." So it basically says, there is a God. Second point, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. There's a religious flavor to this God, and whichever way you get to him, be nice to one another. Point number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. God wants you to be happy, is what this worldview says. Point number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to, re- to resolve a problem. I don't really need God until I really need God. Does that make sense? All right, point number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Now, I'm going to say to you today that that is not Christianity, And for some of you, that might be surprising because, hey, we're thinking that looks pretty much like exactly why I'm here today. And that's okay. I actually think it's widely distributed. It may even be that you've been a Christian for a while and you're tending towards thinking about God in this way. I want to suggest to us today that there is something much better for us but if we condense it down, let's say you never hear the words moral therapeutic deism again, good, we'll all get rid of them. Here's, I think, a better picture. Take, take our vending machine and shrink it down into a little thing that we can rub and out pops a genie. This is, in, in practice, what our view of God looks like. Hello there, you rang. How can I make you feel better right now? How can I serve you? Wow, you're looking nice today. You are just the greatest thing ever, aren't you? Man, am I lucky to be your God. Now, I hope we have a little chuckle there. That's good. That's helpful. You're on board with me. It's a bit cheeky, isn't it? I don't think anyone actually says this. So at some level, it's a stereotype. It's not real. But it kind of points in the direction of what this moral therapeutic deism means. Hey, God, you're lucky to have me. Now, can you make me happy and solve all my problems? Sounds attractive, but it's a long way from the God who we meet in the Bible. So today, as we engage with our, our Old Testament, as we, the reading that we've got here, as we meet God in the Old Testament, let's plonk down a chair and ask God, hey God, what can you do for me? What's he on about in the world? We, we'd want to say, well God, uh, I've got an idea of who you are, so what would you like to do for me? We're going to see who the God in the Old Testament is actually is and who his fulfillment in Jesus actually is as well well there are some people who are asking God the same question hey God what can you do for me one of them was an 80 year old man he was a refugee a murderer and now his life was so fallen and broken that he found himself in a foreign country run away from the place where he'd had high leadership and guess what he was doing shepherding sheep. This 80-year-old man, with all this potential, is now shepherding sheep in a foreign land as a murderer and an escapee from the law. He's saying, hey God, what can you do for me? There's a group of people, a group of people who are living in the land of Egypt, and they've been there as slaves, slaves of the Egyptians. They have been forced into labor, to making bricks for the Egyptians. They do it day in, day out. They don't get paid. They're slaves of the mightiest people in the world. And they had thought that they were the most precious people in the world, that they were the people of God. How long have they been suffering for? 400 years. The people of God, that's what they used to be called, I'm sure they started to doubt it. Hey God, what will you do for me? We have this great title over us, people of God, and guess what we're doing? All we're doing is making bricks for the world's superpower. Hey God, what will you do for me? Well, into this situation, this runaway 80-year-old murderer. These people who've been slaves for 400 years comes the incident that was read for us Today. If I can get you to open your Bibles, we're going to go to Exodus chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 6. Exodus chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 6. If you've got a phone, you can look it up on your phone, but I will ask you to stay with the Bible and not texting, unless you're tweeting out the wonderful things God's telling you, and then go for gold. Uh, So uh, Exodus chapter 3 and verses 1 to 6. Now Moses was tending. Did you know Moses was the 80-year-old? Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. It'll later be called Mount Sinai. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush Moses, Moses, here I am, said Moses. Do not come any closer, said God. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. This is an extraordinary story. This is not Moses imagining God. This is the living God choosing to make himself known by appearing to Abraham. Now, uh, it's interesting, isn't it, to see, have a look, it says in verse 2 there, "...the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within a bush." And you might think, so is it an angel and not God who appears? Well, the answer to that question is, it's truly God who appears in the bush. It says an angel here. There's a sense in which because God is present everywhere, because he's infinitely holy, his ability to be just in this one place in this bush is restricted. But he's truly there as the angel of the Lord. Someone likened it uh, to having a Skype call um when we when we skype so my brother used to be in kazakhstan in central asia and uh when i used to talk to him i was truly talking to him in fact i remember the first one and um, we had he had wireless uh, and he took his laptop to the window and i watched snow falling in kazakhstan i went that's wild I, I know it's very everyday now but the first time i did i just went it's extraordinary here's the thing i was truly meeting with my brother but he wasn't present in all of his fullness does this make sense? So Moses truly meets with the God who fills the whole universe, but he hasn't just compressed all of himself down to a burning bush. Does does this make sense? Okay, so that's the first thing we see. The second extraordinary thing is that God chooses to catch his attention. Yeah? Now, I don't know if if you've thought about this. God could have just gone from the sky, Moses! I think it's incredibly gracious that God sets the bush on fire that doesn't burn. Amazing. And that Moses' response is, Wow, that's really unusual. I haven't seen one of those before. I'm going to go over and check it out. And then you notice what it says. When God saw that he came over, then he spoke to him. Can you see how caring that is? God really could do anything to address him, but he keeps it personal and intimate. So intimate, in fact, that the God of the universe, who's spinning galaxies and sustaining fish in the sea and caterpillars on trees, all of that, that God speaks to this one man, this 80-year-old refugee, and how does he address him? Have a look at the end of verse 4. Moses, Moses. Do, Do you know this is the name that he was given as a child? That the living God knows his name. And out of all the people on the whole earth, he chooses this one man. He says to him, I'm calling you. I'm catching your attention. I'm catching your attention and I'm calling you by name. I just think that's profoundly beautiful. And it shows whatever the majesty and the, the gigantic size of God, he still cares down to the personal level. He knows your name. Doesn't that blow you away? Moses, Moses, he says and Moses said here i am i'm not sure quite what voice he used to say that he might have been a little bit concerned in fact uh, god tells him he should be concerned ha- have a look at, uh, at verse 5 do not come any closer god said take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground do you know some people have beautiful houses some of you might have beautiful houses the people who have beautiful houses Uh, And some people do it for cultural reasons as well. But but when you come to people who've got really beautiful houses, what do we do at the door? Take our shoes off, don't we? Holy ground. I, I guess at some level it's spotless and clean, and we don't want you to defile it with your dirty feet from outside. Does that make sense? God's saying this place where I have now come to be is made holy by my presence here. It's now been transformed. This is a place where unholiness, where sin and deception and, and, uh, and, and all the, the things that defile us are not welcome. So as a sign that you understand that this is a very special place, can you take your shoes off? Moses needed to be more afraid than he was of engaging with the holy God. Fourth point I want you to see here is the kind of God that he introduces himself. Um, at one level, this is God. Uh, does anyone here have a business card? Do we, do we carry them anymore? Anyone? Okay. When we have a business card, you meet someone and you get your card out and you go, here's, um, here's me on a piece of paper, right? Oh, have I got my business card here? Well, that's actually not my business card. But anyway, here's, here's me on a piece of paper. And you hand it over and you say, this is my job. This is where I'm from. This is how to reach me. Okay? Now, at one level, what God is doing precisely here is offering his business card to Moses. Uh, have a look at verse 6. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, for some of us here today, you might go, Well, there's three names. What does that mean? Why does it matter that it's those three names? Well, over the course of this series, we've so far met Abraham to whom God promised a land, that's the green tree, offspring, and that all the countries of the world would be blessed through him. There was a promise made to Abraham. That promise was said again to Isaac and again to Jacob. And so when God introduces himself, he's saying, here's my business card. I'm the promise-keeping God of your fathers. That's me. That's who I am. That's me on a card. And so we see this amazing introduction for Moses. And what's his response? Well, his response is he hid his face and went, I can't believe it. I'm in the presence of the God of my fathers. I'm not worthy to be here. He was afraid to look at God. Well, at that point, uh, God has introduced himself, but not really done much more. We're going to find out today more about the character of the God who reveals himself. Have a look with me uh, at uh, the next uh, set of verses, uh, in verses 7 to 10. The Lord's, uh, then the Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of... These guys, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. The God of the universe is speaking to a runaway 80 year old shepherd, and what he says to him is extraordinary he says to him first of all I have seen the suffering of my people this this is so important for us to get he knew Moses by name yeah you could draw the conclusion from 400 years of slavery what? that God wasn't paying much attention is that right? and what does it say? he says no I have seen your suffering I have seen your suffering more than that I have heard the cry of my people. I have heard it. When they pray, I've not been deaf to what they've said. I've heard it. And now I am choosing to save them. I'm choosing to save them. I'm going to intervene. Now, do you notice how he says he's going to intervene? I'm going to take you out of Egypt and bring you where? To a land. The land that was promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. I'm going to to fulfill that promise. I'm going to take you out and plonk you in this beautiful land that I've prepared for you. That's the kind of God I am. I'm a saving God. I'm a saving God. And I have not been deaf to the cries of your heart. The amazing thing about this though, and it's, it's a terrible lesson for us to learn, but it's so important. When we have the wrong God in mind, we think God, I prayed that three minutes ago, and I'm still not happy yet. I mean, I can start the timer now, God, because I'm waiting for you to get on my case. How long had his holy people been waiting? It said 400 years, didn't it? Here's the thing. God hears, and he cares, and he knows, and he will save. But he won't do it according to our timetable. That's the God who's there, not the God we imagine. Fourthly, as I said, he's the God who's keeping his promise. And so he says, I'm going to save you out from being slaves. I'm going to make you into this nation. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you prosper. I'm going to keep my promise to you. Now, that's got to be encouraging for Moses. Uh, Verse 11, though, uh, sees Moses push back a little bit, as maybe some other 80-year-olds Entrusted with leading people out of the greatest superpower of the world, might have felt. Uh, Moses says in verse 11, but Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Uh, in case you don't know the backstory, Moses had been brought up in Pharaoh's household. He had killed an Egyptian when the Egyptian had been beating up one of his fellow countrymen. Someone had seen him, and so he was on the run from the Egyptian law. And now God's kind of saying to him, Moses, you're my chosen one. What I want you to do is go back into Egypt and I want you to talk to Pharaoh about letting all the people who are whose slaves go. Can can you do that for me? How would you feel? It's an incredible thing, isn't it? So Moses pushes back and says, God, oh, look, there must be some other more qualified humans. Can you find somebody else? And then God says to him, verse 12, I will be with you. And this will be the sign that it is I who have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You'll worship God on this mountain. Moses, do you know I'm never going to leave you or forsake you? Do you know that you will bring them out? And the sign that I'm with you, when you assemble a massive crowd right here and they are worshiping me, that's how you'll know. It's extraordinary. Now, Moses says in verse 13, you can see it up here. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? See, it's, uh, I think so, so often we get caught in Bible land, which is different from us, right? We imagine that the people living in the Bible had a different experience of life. I want you to think what it would be like. You're the people suffering in slavery. The fugitive Egyptian former royalty comes in, covered in clothes for a shepherd, and says, oh, by the way, everyone, I just spoke with your God. And uh, oh, I'm just telling you, we're going to get out of here really soon. I'm just going to go have a word to him about it. And they went, oh, yeah, sure, yeah, no, we're totally with you. Yeah, let's do it. So so what what, what Moses is saying is, God, how can I prove to them that I've actually met with the God of our fathers? What name can I give to you so that they'll believe me, essentially, is is what he's saying. Well, here's what God says. He says in verses 14 to 15, he says this. God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you are saying to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. What what does that mean? Mean? You could say, Brian has sent me, or, or Thor. You know, what sort of a name for a God is I am who I am? What, what does that mean even? What's the point of saying, my name is I am? Well, I think it means, first of all, that God is entirely self-sufficient. I am doesn't mean I need you, it's, it's just, I am I myself. I am the cause of everything else. I exist, and because I exist, everything else exists. I am means I am who I am. I have been in the past. I am now, and I will be into the future. Who do we meet in God? The eternal, self-sustaining person behind the universe. Who am I? I am. Awesome. He goes on though, he gives even more information. Uh, This is what you're to say to the Israelites, I am, has sent me to you. Uh, Then God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. Now when, when it says the Lord, can you see in your Bibles there, when it says the Lord? Can you see it says it in capital letters like that? This is actually really important. It's one of those little things that you just read past all the time. When God says the Lord, he's actually telling them another name for him. Lord in capital letters like this, and you actually see it in your Bibles, is actually God's name. It's not just boss or king. The name actually means Yahweh, and it's the it's represented in these Hebrew letters. And the reason I wiped it from that way to this way, is because that's the way they're read. Okay? Hebrew letters. Four Hebrew letters for God's name. This is his name, and it's pronounced Yahweh. When he says, the Lord has sent you, he's saying, Yahweh has sent you. It's a bit like the Muslims would say, we don't say God, we say Allah. Yeah. What God is saying, I am saying to you, my name is Yahweh. The Lord. And the reason we have the Lord in our text instead of Yahweh is because the Jews in the Old Testament were very careful to keep one of the commandments, which was what? Does anyone know? Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And so when it came to saying God's name, they would never say it. And so the English translations have actually kept this practice and we don't write Yahweh in our Bible. We write Lord. There you go. So this is respecting God's name, but it actually is his name. Who is sending you? I am is sending you. The Lord, or Yahweh, is sending you, the God of your fathers. And they're those cool script that you can see there, which ultra-trendy people have as tattoos on the inside of their arms, or something like that, I think. All right, here's what it says in verses 16 to 17. Go. Here's the battle plan. Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord... The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me and said, how beautiful are these words? I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt, and I have promised to bring you up out of the misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. God has heard, he has seen, and now he will save them into the land of promise. That's the God Who is really there? Okay, here's my overview of the Old Testament Old Testament, New Testament, bunch of pictures here, bunch of pictures there. Where are we at the moment? The Bible's big plan is to take us from creation all the way through to a new creation. The problem we have is that sin has ruined our world. We have dropped into the story after the promises have been made to Abraham here in Egypt. And I think you're wondering, well, it's great to meet the God in the Old Testament. How do we get to Jesus all the way up here in the New Testament? How do we do that? Well, let's have a look at Jesus. Jesus is the God of the universe walking amongst his people. Jesus is a real man who is really God. Have a look at these beautiful verses from uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, and see what's different between a burning bush and a living, breathing man. Have a look at uh, Hebrews uh, 1, verses 1 to 4 here. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, including burning bushes. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. What the Bible is saying here in Hebrews chapter one is that the person of Jesus come into the world is not like a Skype call. It's not a burning bush. That in flesh you are meeting the living God. Something extraordinary has happened. He's arrived in person, not just phoning it in. So Hebrews says that, but I think we want to ask the question, did Jesus claim this for himself? So some people would say, hey, Jesus is a great teacher. Yep, he's a great teacher. He taught lots of good things, but everyone kind of got a bit carried away with him, and now they've made him out to be God. What did Jesus say about himself? Well, this is where our passage from John comes in. I'd love you to flip there, go all the way to the New Testament and find John chapter 8 if you can. John chapter 8. because I'd love you to make sure that I'm getting this right. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. John chapter 8. And we're going to have a quick look at the end here. Jesus is in a dispute with the teachers of the law. And uh, basically... They should have been going, hey, Jesus, we think you're excellent. You're God in a bod. You are telling us what God wants us to know. But instead, they were sceptical. And they thought, it's not right. You, you can't be wandering around as the living God. You must be possessed by a demon or something like that. Jesus tells them, whoever obeys my word will never see death. And they say, well, now we know you're demon-possessed, because everyone up to now has died, including Abraham. Jesus picks it up. Have a look with me at verse 58. In in fact, he says uh, uh, in verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You're not yet 50 years old, they said to him. And you have seen Abraham? Verse 58, Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born... I am Before Abraham was born I am That's highly unusual unless you think Jesus just has some sort of weird speech defect have a listen to what the what the people in the in the account here did at this what did they do They picked up stones to do what to stone him. Why did they want to stone him? All he had just said, before Abraham was born, I am. And we might have said, is that bad grammar? Is that why they want to stone No, it's not that. Because when he said, I am, okay, they heard all the way back to Exodus chapter 3. Before Abraham was born, I am is an extraordinary claim. And so the reason they're picking up stones is they're saying, this guy is making himself out to be God. And what happens to people who blaspheme the name of God? Does anyone know? They get stoned to death. Incidentally, I was sitting with a um, uh, Jehovah's Witness, actually, um, who says Jesus is less than God. And they have all these things all set out in preparation to answer all the great challenges, the the key passages. I took them to this passage. I was was literally reading it that morning in Maccas when someone came up and sat down next to me and started talking to me. Anyway, these things happened to me. And... uh, and he started talking to me. He says, oh, you know, did you know that Jesus isn't God? And I thought, well, actually, I just read this. This is pretty cool. Um, Jesus says here, before Abraham was born, I am. And he says, yeah, what? And I said, well, I want you to see what they do. They're picking up stones to stone him. Do you know why they're picking up stones to stone him? He said, I don't. Because he's blaspheming in their, in their, in their thinking. He's saying they think he's blasphemed, so they want to stone him to death. What do they get? What do the Jews here get? they hear a claim of divinity. Do you understand? They heard a claim of divinity. They heard Jesus claiming to be God. And so they want to stone him. I showed this guy and he went, um, uh, I haven't seen that passage before. Thank you for pointing it out. I'm going to go and talk to someone about that. Well, now you can too. Jesus says, I am. And it's an extraordinary claim to be divine. Why did he come? Well, let's, let's just see this quickly. Why had Jesus come? It's beautifully put, famously put in John 3, 16 and 17, isn't it? For God so loved the world. This is Jesus speaking about himself. He says, God the Father so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Beautiful. That's my God. That's the God who really exists and the, and the mission of his son. He came to save. It says in 1 Peter 2.24 this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. Why did Jesus come? To pay the price for our sins, to die on the cross, on the tree for us, that we might leave an old life of sin and start a new life of righteousness. That's why he came, to continue the saving work of his Father. So I want to tell you today, the God in the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, what's he like? He's the God who sees our sin, who hears our cry, who has come to save us who's come to save us. So let me leave you with this challenge. I want to think today about what the God is that you're hanging on to. What's he really like? Is the God you're hanging on to a God largely of your imagination? A vending machine for your short-term satisfaction? Hey God, I just need to phone in a couple of requests for today. I'm not really interested in what else you've got to say. I really just need to be a bit happier. I need you to take care of me today. Or is the God that we're going to worship, that we're going to give our life to, actually the God of reality, known through the person of his Son who died to save us from our sins? See, there's some terrible news in it, isn't it? I have to admit that I'm a sinner. But the wonderful upside of doing that is that he will save us, cleanse us, wash us, make us new. I want to think about whether here today we're interested in short-term satisfaction or salvation from sin. I want to ask those of you who are living with a God that you started today, more like the vending machine, and ask you, are you really dissatisfied with the actual living God? Or are you dissatisfied with the caricature of God that you've invented? Has the real God let you down or the God of your imagination? If you've been trusting Jesus for a long time here, I want to ask the Christians who are here today, are you truly satisfied with the living God? Are you truly satisfied with the living God? Does he meet your deepest need, salvation, purpose and the desire to be part of his program to bring a blessing to the whole world? Not our personal happiness, his plan for the salvation of the whole universe. Are we truly satisfied with the living God? So today I want to leave you with this choice. And I want you to think what has to change What has to change about how you think about what God is truly offering? Is he offering short-term satisfaction to you or life-changing salvation from sin? I want to tell you, chippies taste good, make you fat, ruin dinner. There's only one meal that would truly satisfy, the right meal. There's only one God who would truly meet our deepest needs. And it's not to be happy is to find forgiveness, purpose, and new life. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for us here today. I pray that you would help us to do the hard work of loosening the tight grip we have on an imaginary God that does not exist. Father, where we have been disappointed with you because you haven't done the things we want, I pray, Father, you would help us to see with new eyes that you care, that you love us deeply, that you have done everything through your Son to save us. Heavenly Father, for those of us who know you, help us to cling to the wonderful truth of our forgiveness. Help us to get on board with your purpose of sharing this good news with those around us. Heavenly Father, give us the courage to love you as you truly are, and to find new life in you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.